Hey everyone, what is going on? What is new? Welcome one and all to a brand new episode of Sweeten Up featuring myself, Jeff Spencer, and I am so glad that you could take some time out of your quarantine routine to join me. I appreciate it very much. Of course, don't forget that you can find the podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode. Also, when you support our sponsor, you support the podcast, and we appreciate you for that. I hope everyone had a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. Of course, Memorial Day weekend is the day we honor those who gave the ultimate sacrifice, and we appreciate those who may be listening or those who have loved ones, friends, family in the service. We appreciate you. We love you. Thank you. And of course, our love this Memorial Day also goes out to all the frontline essential and healthcare workers who are putting their lives at risk every day. And our thoughts and prayers, of course, are with those who have passed on and their families and friends as they will never be forgotten. That being said, we were fortunate to be gifted with such a beautiful weekend. I feel like Mother Nature really took care of us this Memorial Day weekend. And I took that time to resurrect an old vegetable garden in my yard that needed some love. I never realized uh, how much hard work really goes into a vegetable garden, and I've been sore ever since. Uh, My girlfriend and I got busy weeding and giving the vegetable garden life. Uh, We planted a bunch of different plants from Brussels sprouts to kale to jalapenos, sweet peppers, cucumbers, cabbage, cherry tomatoes, etc. So for those that maybe got out there this past weekend and got dirty, I hear you, and I hope that your gardens are bountiful, as I hope mine will be. And I hope that uh, you're not as sore as I am. I mean, my arms, my back, I am in a lot of pain. Anyways, joining me on the podcast today is Will Haskell. Will Haskell is an American politician and a member of the Connecticut State Senate representing the 26th District. The district encompasses the towns of Reading, Ridgefield, Wilton, and parts of Bethel, Weston, Westport, and New Canaan, Connecticut. Haskell is a member of the Democratic Party and the Senate Democratic Caucus. Senator Haskell is the youngest member of the Connecticut General Assembly. He was elected to his seat as state senator when he was just 23 years old. He has an incredible story, is super smart and genuine, and it was an honor to have him on the podcast. We talked about his run for state senator, his appeal to an older generation, his huge endorsement that he got in 2018, his thoughts on COVID-19, and so much more. So, Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here is my interview with Connecticut State Senator Will Haskell. Joining me on the podcast today, giving me some of his free time in a hectic time, like I said previously, is Connecticut State Senator Will Haskell. Senator Haskell, thank you so much for joining me this evening, and how are you doing? Jeff, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here, and I am uh, healthy, so what more can you ask for right about now? Exactly. You can't really ask for much more. I, I wake up every morning and I'm healthy and, and I feel good and I'm, I'm thankful and I just hope that continues. So I, I couldn't agree more. Um, one thing I you know really want to ask you and I figure we just get right down into it. I just want to know because I'm sure a lot of listeners might be curious. You have a lot of fans out there. Um, you were you a, a highly sought after guest on the podcast. And how does someone in their early 20s become a state senator? Because when I was in my early 20s a few years ago, I never thought of becoming a state senator um, at all. And, you know, was, was this always your plan or 
did you have a plan before this? You know, did you grow up wanting to be a state senator or politician? I'm, I'm very curious about that. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> so the short answer to your question is definitely not. I didn't even know who my <laughs> state senator was growing up in Westport. Uh, I guess the shortest answer is after Donald Trump won, I just, I felt like I had to do something. I felt like everybody else was rolling up their sleeves. There was the, the beginnings of a, what would become a blue wave. And I just thought, you know, this fight against what was happening in Washington really does start at the state and local level. So, you know, I was in my college dorm room and I just wondered who were my representatives in government? It turned out the folks in, in Westport, my hometown, were doing a really good job on the town level. And I had a state representative who I really agreed with. And then as I worked my way up the ladder, I found out that I had a state senator who I just didn't agree with on a whole bunch of issues. And she'd been in office for as long as I'd been alive. And I thought it was time <laughs> for a change. So it was right. not part of my plan at all. Uh, my girlfriend and I were both planning on going off to law school. I, I sort of put that on hold. And I just came home and started door knocking and have enjoyed every minute of it. I got to say, it's been a, a, a really fun adventure. That is so awesome. So for those out there that don't know, um, Senator Haskell is 24 years old. Um, are, are you currently the youngest member of, of uh, um, the, you know, the Connecticut Center or the legislator? I am, yeah. Okay, awesome. I mean, that, that's what I thought. I mean, when I first heard of you, um, I heard about you running in, in, in 2018, I was, I was thrilled because I thought, uh, you know, a young voice, a new voice, something that I think we really could use, especially in um, the district that you ran in. And, um, you know, one other thing I want to ask you is, you know, when you when you uh, were planning to run for office, you were you were at Georgetown University, correct? I was, yeah. And I hired my college roommate of four years to be my <laughs> campaign manager. Everyone told me you got to find a campaign manager you can really trust. And um, right. I didn't have any experience with this. I, I talked to a whole bunch of people, and they all seemed to know a lot about campaigns, but I didn't have that sort of built-in relationship, that built-in trust, uh, like I did with my roommate. And uh, one night, I remember we were uh, at a you know college party or something. And he was talking about how he was applying to uh, campaigns across the country. And I said, you know, why don't you just come and manage mine instead? And, uh, <laughs> you know, we, uh, we ended up building a really great team, not just to the two of us, but we built this sort of intergenerational uh, campaign filled with, you know, we had a weekly volunteer actually who, who had once voted for FDR, which I thought was the coolest thing. And wow. she, was, she would sit next to every Tuesday at our campaign headquarters at, on Telephone Tuesdays. She would sit next to somebody who was not yet old enough to vote, not by a long shot. I think that volunteer was 15 or 16 years old. So wow. I'm really proud. What, one of the things I'm most proud of in the last campaign, probably more than the fact that we won, was the fact that we built this really exciting intergenerational um, campaign that focused on down ballot races that would otherwise you know might fly under the radar you know that's awesome and it's it's funny you mention that because one of the questions i wanted to actually ask you and something i was very interested in is you know being someone as young as yourself um you know which in no means is a slight because these days you know people are, are capable of doing uh, doing incredible things it doesn't matter your age it doesn't matter about anything you know you can really do anything you want to do if you really set your mind to it and i'm just curious when you were running um, for state center in, in your district in Connecticut, what do you think it was that, uh, you know, had older, you know, people appealing to you, you know, the, you know, the younger person, the younger generation running, what do you, what do you think it was that you were able to get, uh, to connect with the older uh, folks? 
Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question, Jeff, because um, I was, if there's one message I have for other young people who are thinking about running for office, first of all, do it. Second of all, give me a call. I'm eager to talk (laughs) about all the the mistakes that we made. and Yeah, you're a great guy for sure. How we can lend a hand. But I also want to say that uh, recognize that your youth isn't a liability. In fact, it's an asset. In the last campaign, I knocked on around 4,000 doors. And the first, the first thousand doors, I was really embarrassed about my age. And it was the very first question I got every time. This is a a podcast, but if it were a video thing, you would see that, you know, I'm 23, but I look like I'm 12 and (laughs) everybody wanted to know uh, how old I was. That was the first question out of their mouth. And initially I would answer sort of sheepishly. I would say, Oh, you know, I graduated from college this year, but listen, here's what I want to do about our pension problem. Here's what I want to do about making higher ed more affordable. Here's what I want to do about climate change. What I came to realize is that actually uh, they were asking the question because a lot of voters of all ages, including some of my more elderly constituents viewed my youth as an opportunity to pass the torch, an exciting sign that the next generation was not only stepping off of the sidelines, but was stepping into the ballot box. And in some cases, uh, getting their name on the ballot. They were excited about the next generation uh, shedding the political apathy that's given us, frankly, a bad reputation in political discourse and instead diving into the nitty gritty details of government. You know, this stuff isn't sexy. It's not always exciting, but it is really important because it makes a difference in people's lives. So exactly. Anyways, I think that uh, the biggest change that we experienced as a campaign was I started to talk about my age unabashedly and to tout the fact that, yeah, we need every generation at the table. We need to make sure that representative democracy really is representative. Exactly. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And I thought it was so interesting as I was watching your, your campaign and watching your run, how you were able to connect with so many people. And I was just amazed and not really surprised because as you said, you know, youth is definitely an asset. And um, was there anything, you know, did, did you have any experience um, in politics before you decided to, to start your campaign? Um, and, And if so, what was that? I had some internships with great people, mentors, uh, people like Congressman Jim Himes and Senator Murphy, and Mm. I learned a lot. But running a down-ballot race, it's totally different, right? You've got to make people care about an office that they might not know have known existed. My mom, I always think of as sort of the the classic voter who we would target. She voted in in what she thought was every election. She voted every four years. And I had to, (laughs) uh, you know, let her know that, first of all, we have a state senate and we run it. My mom is, you know, uh, exceptionally smart, and I, and I think the world of her, it's just, you know, voters are really busy. They don't always have time to pay attention to the 36 state senators and the 151 state representatives in Hartford. And that's especially a problem here in Fairfield County, where, frankly, culturally, we're more associated with New York sometimes than we are with New England, right? This is an area right. where people wrote for the, uh, you know, root for the Yankees more than they root for the Red Sox. Right. And as a result, all of our field trips when I was growing up in the public schools here, we would go into New York City. We never went up to Hartford. A big part of my mission as a state senator is to reach out to social studies teachers and principals and most importantly students and write them letters saying, hey, come visit Hartford. Come check out. Come be a part of our state government and, uh, and learn more about the amazing history and culture and uh, opportunities that Connecticut has to offer. Yeah, I'm we not do sure have- I, I really answered your question, but no, uh, yeah, you did. Down definitely did. no i because because i agree with you i mean we definitely have a lot of great places up here in our state um and and i can definitely remember a lot of field trips when i went to new york city and um but i'm a met fan so i'll let that whole yankee thing you just said slide (laughs) Um, (laughs) but um 
you know, I'm actually kind of, one thing I'm actually kind of interested in um, is, is uh, when you were uh, deciding to run and, um, and you want, and well, and you won, what, uh, what were some goals that you had for your first term in office? And, you know, what were they, how did they pan out in your first year as a state senator? So I really wanted to build relationships with, um, with older legislators, right? Like it would have been easy to come in and to try to form like a young legislator caucus and reorient the conversation, but that's just more us versus them politics. It's just a different dividing line. And instead I thought it would be more challenging, but more uh, fruitful to really form relationships with folks who had been there for a really long time. And I learned a lot from my colleagues who were by and large, uh, really friendly and willing to talk. I mean, we had our moments. Uh, there was one uh, one of my colleagues who, when we were debating raising the minimum age for buying tobacco to 21, he stood up and said that he was going to propose an amendment that you couldn't be a legislator unless you were 25, uh, which would have- I heard about that. So, I made uh, news. I heard about that. That's right. <laughs> I walked over to his desk and we had a conversation. But for the most part, legislators taught me the sort of uh, Byzantine complications and intricacies of the legislative process. And Look, it's really important that we focus on things like social security, tax relief, and that we make sure that the next generation is protected with regard to pensions. It's really important that we talk about the high, uh, about making sure that commuters can travel to Manhattan in, in a time efficient and effective manner. But it's also really important that we talk about the next generation in Connecticut, about the 21st century workforce that too often is overlooked. And I tried to work that into conversation. So as when I was appointed the chair of the Higher Education and Employment Advancement Committee, I, I realized really early on that we had an opportunity to talk about college affordability, to recognize and, and address the injustice that Connecticut has the highest student loan debt in the nation. But we weren't going to just address that by, by talking about and talking to young people. We had to make others realize that student loan debt holds all of our economy back. And, you know, one of the best partners in that in the fight against our ever increasing student loan debt was actually the Connecticut Realtor Association, because on average, student loan debt delays the purchase of a first home in Connecticut by seven years. So tapping into uh, multi-generational wisdom and saying, look, you're frustrated that you can't sell your house. Well, maybe it's because college is no longer affordable and people are stuck paying off their student loan bills until the, until they're 50 years old. Uh, that was a conversation that actually, you know, uh, bore some real legislative progress. We were able to pass debt-free community college. We were able to pass a tax credit for folks who were trying to pay back their student loans. Wow. And it was all because we built intergenerational connections rather than only talking to and about young people. Wow. That's awesome. So much of what you said, I, I love too, because a lot of it is in line with one of my favorite politicians, Bernie Sanders. So like so much of what you're saying just reminds me of, just reminds me of, of him, but just with a younger, younger voice. And, and I love it. And that was one of the reasons why I was drawn to you so much when I saw that you were running. And honestly, um, I, I'd have to say probably one of your biggest endorsements, and I'm curious how you felt about this when, when, um, former President Barack Obama endorsed you for, in 2018 for your seat. Uh, what was that like? It was crazy. Man. <laughs> nowhere. Uh, we were sitting in our campaign office, which was a, uh, you know, old Chinese restaurant uh, where we basically threw down a carpet. It had a, a real, you know, smell to it. And it was just one big room. It's not like there was any privacy in that office. If you were having right. a meeting, everybody was listening. Gotcha. Uh, but I was sitting there signing letters to newly registered voters. And one of the one of the amazing stories about the 2018 election is just the number of, of young people who registered to vote for the very first time. 
in a midterm election year, we saw almost presidential turnout, which is just stunning. And, and it, frankly, I, you know, I find really inspiring. Anyways, I, oh, I that's amazing. Really telling of the times, too. Totally. And I only know that we had such uh, such exciting voter registration numbers because I would sign a letter to every newly registered voter. And I was signing those letters one day in the office when I got a call totally out of the blue that President Obama the next day would be endorsing <laughs> the campaign. And I just wrote, I scribbled a note to my campaign manager, like just. I wrote the words Obama and neither of us <laughs> it was a, a total surprise. And it's always really exciting to have someone like that endorse your campaign, but it's especially important for young candidates because we've got oh, a yeah. credibility gap, right? A lot of people see somebody our age running for office and they kind of roll their eyes. They assume we don't know what we're talking about, but when somebody like Obama who has so much credibility, not just within the Democratic Party, but also with so many independent and unaffiliated voters, with, with apathetic voters who just really admire the eight years uh, during which he led this country. Um, it, it really helped us meet that credibility threshold so, so that folks felt a little bit more comfortable casting a vote for somebody who maybe was younger than their kids, or in some cases, their grandkids. Right. And, you know, just to let some of the, you know our, our uh, listeners know, uh, you, you, before you even got into politics, you were thinking about doing law, correct? Yeah, my girlfriend is off at law school now, and that was totally uh, what I was thinking about doing. I mean, I was always interested in politics. I, I had the opportunity to um, see then-Senator Barack Obama when I was in middle school give a speech at, at a high school in New Hampshire, and I just thought politics seems, seemed like the coolest thing ever. But I think like a lot of young people, I just had it on my to-do list for, you know, another decade. Uh, I, I had a whole bunch of other things that I thought I should do first. And then uh, the Trump candidacy and then the, the ensuing Trump presidency just presented an, a new urgency to it where I thought, you know what, why wait for somebody else? Why not Why not take that leap of faith now? This is a, When you graduate from college, it's a unique moment in your life where you can do something a little bit more adventurous and uh, a little bit more daring. Uh, and I decided to do that instead. Nice. I'm curious uh, if you weren't a politician right now and you weren't a state senator, uh, what kind of law were you curious in getting into? Well, I still really want to do this eventually. I, I, I hope to go to law school. And I think that public defenders do God's work. I spent mm. a summer working for a public defender in Connecticut and mm. uh, I still, you know, we, we talk on a basically weekly basis, uh, my old boss and myself, but she's got 600 active clients right now, 600. And she knows wow. all of their names and she, she doesn't wow. miss court date. She's there every single day uh, trying to get them reconnected with their families, trying to make sure that they get their day in court. Right. I'm just in awe of what public defenders do. And if I ever do have an opportunity to go to law school, that's really uh, a job that I would be honored and thrilled to hold one day. Right. No. And, and, and sometimes when I think public defender, I actually think better call Saul. Are you a fan of that show? <laughs> I've never seen it to be honest. No. You know, oh, okay. Okay. Right now I'm, I'm getting really deep into the good wife, which is a uh, good wife. Okay. Okay. I'm about, you know, maybe a decade late or something, but my girlfriend and I are all about it. No, that's fine. That's fine. But better, but honestly, I, th I think you'd like better call Saul with the, with the whole law aspect. I think you'd like, all right. All right. That'll I don't know. I'll throw it out there. Well, you know, let me know. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> Um, so I kind of want to, um, switch gears a little bit. I know right now with everything that's going on with, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, I figure maybe we talk about that just for a little bit before we wrap up. Yeah. Um, and, and of course I would love to have you back on, um, Senator Haskell sometime when, you know, things aren't so crazy and hectic and, and we've got a little more free time on our hands. But, um, one thing I want to ask you is I know how the state of Connecticut 
did the phase one of the reopening of the state uh, on May 20th. What have you seen in Westport and in your district since the reopening? What have you seen that makes you, you know, positive, makes you, you know, you know, really just looking forward to things getting done? And what have you seen that really just kind of discourages you and makes you wonder uh, what's really going to happen down the line? Good question. Um, Let me start with the negative, just because I like to end on the positive. Um, On the down, so Westport's a shoreline town. I represent seven towns, but Westport's right on the water. We've got Campo Beach and we've got Sherwood Island State Park for obvious reasons. It was a beautiful Memorial Day weekend. A lot of people wanted to get out there, uh, experience our, our amazing coastline. Understandable, but as Governor Lamont said, we're not the Ozarks. We're not Georgia. We didn't have huge, massive pool parties, but people's guard. Uh, they, they let their guards slip just a little bit, right? Maybe they went to the beach and they sat next to their close family friends. Maybe they forgot about those six feet of social distancing. Maybe they decided not to wear a mask when they were in public, even though it is the governor's order that they do so. Um, right. I worry that all of this, you know, it, it feels great because it's sunny out and the numbers are declining, but we know from people like Dr. Fauci on the national level and Dr. Coe here in the state of Connecticut that it is not only possible, but it is in fact likely that we will see a second wave and we should not be lulled into a false sense of security. So it's right. really important that people stay vigilant. I know it's brutally hard because it's so nice out. Take, take a walk every day. It's not that you can't go to the beach. It's just make sure you're going to the beach with your immediate household and not to meet up with others. Make sure that you do maintain six feet of social distancing between your your beach towels or your picnic blankets. Let me talk about the positive, though. Something that really inspired me was this morning. I went to to join a bunch of volunteers with a group called Food for Behind the Lines. Oh, this is great. I was going to ask you about this, too, because I saw this on your your social media. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm glad you saw it. It's this amazing organization uh, started by a bunch of volunteers here in Westport who said, you know what? Restaurants are really struggling right now, Um, not just restaurant owners, but also their employees who are out of work. And sometimes they don't qualify for things like unemployment benefits or economic impact payments or any of the other aid that's available. And a lot of them, there's a, a cruel irony here because these are restaurants that feed our local community. Many of them now are having trouble feeding their own families. They can't afford right. food on the table. So uh, Food for Behind the Lines raised thousands of dollars. They need thousands more in order to keep doing their work. But they assembled this amazing team to um, to pack bags and deliver groceries. And you know, I can claim no credit here. They, they did everything. But this morning, I wow. got to drop by just to volunteer for an hour or so, right. packing bags. And I don't know, in the hour that I was there, we distributed, I think, 200 meals that are going to feed 800 people. That's that's wow. really um, uh, life-changing support wow. for families that are on the brink of uh, economic disaster right now. So if you no, can, I, I just want to put in a pitch. If you can donate to food from behind the lines, if you're of, of the means to do so, please consider doing that. And this is just one example of the way that our community is meeting the challenges of this moment, rising to the moment in ways both large and small. And my hope is that history books, when they look back on COVID-19, they're not just going to remember the number of folks who we lost and the tra- the traumatic suffering that everyone endured, but they're also going to remember the the small and large ways that neighbors stood up for neighbors. No, you're, <laughs> you're a hundred percent. I mean, it's, it's been, it's been such an interesting ride and I, and restaurants are hurting. I had a chef on, twice already who is doing a takeout Tuesday special because, you know, he was affected by the pandemic. And I know that Chef Storch and, and Westport, the owner of uh, um, Match Burger Lobster, one of my favorite places to go on my birthday. Um, I know that he 
uh, is doing everything he can to help uh, people out, help support restaurants. Um, Matt's you know, a great guy. And, and he, oh, he's tremendous. I mean, please, if you can afford to do it, even if it's once a week, go go and get that takeout meal. It is what's keeping our restaurants alive during this challenging time. Yeah, I've been I've been recommending to to anyone I can, you know, get get takeout as much as you can because you know the restaurants at the end of the day they're always there for us. They're always there to feed us. They're always there to take care of us when when we want to come out and have a nice dinner, whether it's our anniversary, our birthday, you know, a wedding, you know, all special occasions. We usually go out to restaurants, and they're the people that make that special occasion really special. So I, I think you know I, I can't think of of you know a better thing to do, you know, and and that you know that goes along with, you know, making sure we take care of our healthcare workers and take care of all our, our, you know, our essential workers. And one thing I want to ask you about, uh, Senator Haskell is I live in Newtown, Connecticut. And what I've noticed recently since the pandemic has started, not right when the quarantine started, when they said to stay in your homes, but maybe like a, a few weeks to a month after, I noticed that there was a major uptick in violent crimes um, domestic violence, uh, a lot of things in, in my town that normally wouldn't happen, things definitely out of the norm. I mean, when Newtown is making the paper, you know, three to four to five times a week, that's usually something that concerns me. And I'm just wondering, have you noticed anything like that? Have you heard from any of um, your constituents about anything like that? Yeah, well, so you mentioned domestic violence, and let's start there. It is uh, understandable for public health reasons that we are telling people in the state of Connecticut, stay safe and stay home. But we also have to remember that for survivors of domestic violence, these are contradictory orders. They are not safe when they're staying home. That's why the state of Connecticut uh, specifically requested to FEMA that we're able to provide housing for folks who don't feel safe at home, who are struggling because of the plight of domestic violence. And you know, if you're out there, if you're struggling, please pick up the phone right now. Call 888-774- Two nine zero zero. Advocates are available twenty four seven. They are trained. They That's are ready awesome. to help. You can also always text. Uh, you know, ctsafeconnect.org. There's a ton of uh, of help that's available to you. Please, please avail yourself of it because we do not want anyone to feel as though uh, their struggle is being forgotten simply because we put in place a stay at home order. We have to remember that home is not safe for everybody. And you know, the other point that you uh, mentioned, Jeff, that it, it is worth talking about. Um, mental health awareness for those who are isolated at home. This is a really challenging time. There's a lot of anxiety that this pandemic has produced and, you know, social interactions are key for many people to maintaining their own mental wellness. Oh yeah. Now that uh, has become impossible. So a few things to know, first of all, telehealth has been expanded. So you can meet with with a therapist or counselor. If you're listening and you're struggling, you can meet with someone who's willing to help over zoom or over uh, Skype or over FaceTime or just over the phone. Uh, Every day I talk to therapists who are rolling up their sleeves and helping folks in their community. Um, Their business is is actually steadily increasing because a lot of folks are are going through this challenging time. So remember that we're in this together and and there's help available. Right. No, that's, that's very, very well said. I mean, you know, your, your district is, is a pretty big one in Fairfield County, I would say. I mean, uh, um, a lot, a lot goes on. There's a lot of moving parts and um, I can't imagine that, the COVID-19 pandemic has been very easy for you. And I'm wondering, uh, is there a set date when, you know, yourself and other Connecticut legislators will be able to go back to Hartford and conduct business? Have you heard anything about that? Or are you guys kind of just hungered down at home for the time being? 
That is a really good question. And I don't know the answer. Um, it's okay. probably, unfortunately above my pay grade, but every <laughs> of I'm on the phone with our, our leadership in the Senate Democratic Caucus, Senator Looney, Senator Looney, Senator Duff. I know that all of my colleagues, I think on both sides of the aisle are really eager to get back to work to, to start legislating. Um, we've all been working from home, serving our constituents and doing, you know, helping people with their unemployment claims, assisting small businesses with their applications. But we also want to do something um, bigger. We want to make sure that we're passing legislation. Uh, and I think the hesitation from a public health perspective is uh, just a reflection of the fact that by definition, we all live in different parts of the state. Uh, many of us shake hands for a living, though we haven't been doing that lately. Hopefully, we have been careful. So the last thing we would want is the legislature to be a vector where this, where this virus is spread. That said, we need to find a way to safely get back to work. And fingers crossed, uh, you know, I'm, I'm rooting for June, sometime in June. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Um, few more, few more things I have for you. Um, two that I think are pretty important or, and are going to be possibly very interesting in the future. Possibly. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to get your opinion on this. And, um, so with the COVID-19 pandemic education moving forward and jobs moving forward, do you, what do you see happening with education? Do you see education being maybe more at home? Do you seeing schools really going back to full capacity right away? Do you think our education system will change? And what do you think will, will happen with, um, you know, our jobs in the state and, and our job rates and, and unemployment and, and things like that with our economy? Great question. Um, first of all, you know, I think they're, I think the question about jobs and the question about education is one and the same. Unless we are, we are thinking about tomorrow, unless we are preparing uh, and educating a workforce that's equipped with 21st century skills, then we're going to face all sorts of economic issues in terms of a uh, workforce pipeline and advanced manufacturing, making sure that employers have the employees they need to succeed. Just the other week, I wrote, um, along with Senator Kathy Austin, one of my colleagues who I really respect, uh, an article for the Hartford Current. They put on the headline, and I, I liked how they uh, phrased it, community colleges hold the key to economic recovery after the coronavirus. I think that's so true. Uh, this shouldn't be a partisan issue, right? Tennessee became the first state in the country to offer every high school student an opportunity to attend community college. That's a deeply red state. Red governor, very conservative legislature, but they recognize that employers need access to skilled, talented, tech-savvy employees. And unfortunately, in Connecticut, we are facing uh, a workforce pipeline issue. We hear, I hear from employers all the time. An advanced manufacturing firm in my district told me just a few months ago that they have had about 150 job openings posted online for the last year and that they can't possibly fill. And I have to believe that this problem is connected to the fact that community colleges over the last uh, roughly a decade have seen a steady decline in enrollment. If we're going to reverse that trend, we have to make sure that affordability is not a barrier for anyone who's seeking to attain a degree. Yes, you know, not everyone needs to go to college, but anybody who wants to go to college should be able to afford to do so. And that's why I'm pushing so hard for the uh, successful implementation of our free community college program, because I really do believe that this isn't just about helping students. It's about helping uh, businesses, and it's about making sure our economy is prepared to meet the unique and rising challenges of the 21st century. So uh, education, job creation, economy, it's all wrapped into one. Are we giving businesses with the highly skilled workers they need? The answer right now is no, but we could do it. Our community colleges, I visited almost every one over the last few months, and they are ready to do the job. They just need more students. Right. And have you noticed, 
Um, how have you noticed? Um, have you been talking to colleges about how they've been able to adapt um, with the with the whole like at home learning? Everything's probably been been pretty good with that. Now they've been able to probably iron everything out. Yeah, you know, I, I really my heart goes out to the students. It's not uh, what you would picture as the college experience for many. Uh, they're yeah, especially with graduation not happening. Yeah. Totally. It's, it's really tough for high school students and for college students. I give a huge amount of credit to our, our faculty at the universities, uh, public and private, and also the, the teachers out there who are trying to make remote learning exciting, not just, you know, for teenagers, but also even students who are younger. A teacher in my district is writing postcards to every student to remind them that oh, that's they're awesome. still there is, and, and they anyways, making everything a little bit more personal. It's really right. challenging, but I do think that our schools and our universities have stepped up to the plate to provide some level of educational continuity. Where this is struggling, frankly, is in some districts that I don't represent, districts that are uh, have, have fewer resources, and we've got to make sure that they have the technology they need so that every kid can sign into Zoom. Right. So to, to kind of wrap up um, real quick, and I asked this to um, Senator Winfield as well, uh, how, how do you feel um, Ned Lamont did with the COVID-19 pandemic? How would, you know, how would you rate his response? And one thing I want to ask is, you know, obviously I've never spoken to Ned Lamont in my life, but I did vote for him. And I'm curious, you know, what, what kind of guy is Ned Lamont uh, for our state? Governor's got a lot of skills, but the biggest one that I would say is he listens. If you really want to talk to Governor Ned Lamont, you can you can get a hold of him, right? I mean, he has an open door policy and that applies to Democrats, Republicans, unaffiliated voters and apathetic folks who, you know, don't pay a lot of attention to politics. He has brought folks into the political arena who weren't previously paying attention. I give him a lot of credit for that. I love his open door policy. It means he's accessible uh, to voters, to legislators. He, I don't always agree with everything he does, but I agree with a, a whole lot of it. And frankly, you know, there's no playbook here. It's a uh, it's an entirely unprecedented and unforeseen crisis. I think that uh, Governor Lamont and, and his team have done a, a pretty exceptional job at uh, shutting down our economy, making those tragically difficult decisions when the moment right. required it, but also figuring out how science can lead the way when it comes to reopening. Yes, everybody wants to reopen. Of course, we want to get schools open again. Of course, we want to let small businesses throw open their doors. But science has to lead the way. And Governor Lamont, it, it, it goes back to what I said was his greatest skill. He's not a scientist, but he knows how to listen to those who really know what they're talking about. And uh, I give him a lot of credit. Connecticut's response hasn't been perfect, right? We see far too many people who are behind bars struggling. We see right. the we saw nursing homes and assisted living facilities hit especially hard and a shortage of PPE that, of course, was directly related to the fact that we didn't get much help from the federal government, if any. Right. Uh, that said, given the card he's been dealt, I give the governor a lot of credit. I'm proud to uh, to call him a friend. And even though we might not always agree, he does have that open door, so he's accessible to the people of Connecticut, and that matters a lot. That does matter a lot, and I'm and I'm glad you said that, and that's really good to know. And I I kind of had similar um, similar thoughts about about Governor Lamont, and I was happy to vote for him. And one thing I thought was cool is he's a musician. He when he was on the campaign trail, and I would see him playing the piano. Um, my friends and I actually came up with a nickname. We called him Shred Lamont. And I always <laughs> <laughs> and I always wanted to tell him that, like maybe at like a parade or like you know, like a gathering or event, but I never I really got the chance. I'll tell him this week. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I always thought like, man, I would love to have him on the podcast, but I'm sure with the COVID-19, he's really busy. So I thought maybe when it was over, I would try to reach out to him, but who knows? Um, I really appreciate Senator Haskell. Thank you for coming on, but real quick, you can't go without answering a question that I'm deciding that 
from here on out, I'm going to ask this question every time before the podcast ends. And the question is, A, do you like pizza? And B, if you do, this is the, the big burning question in Connecticut. And I think everyone can agree. What is your favorite pizza in New Haven, Connecticut? Ooh, great question. Uh, I feel a lot of pressure. I'm sure a lot of people are going uh, <laughs> to about me right now. But uh, I am a big fan of uh, bars. Uh, uh, what's it called? It's got mashed potatoes and bacon and garlic. I freaking love that pizza, man. It's so good. Uh, gotcha. Yeah. So I guess I would say bar pizza is my favorite. Of course, Pepe's is great. Can't go wrong. But sure. bar pizza takes the cake for me. You know what? I like bar too a lot. And I would really like to have maybe like the owner of bar or, or whoever on. That would be really cool because I actually like bar. A lot of my friends like bar. I like them all. I mean, I, I feel like you can't really go wrong, but I, I would have to agree with you. Bar is really, really good. And it's interesting because Senator Winfield actually said that his family is a big fan of DiMatteo's in Hamden. So that he went way out of the box nah. and he told me not to tell anyone, but since it's on the podcast, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of too bad for him. <laughs> Well, anyways, Senator Haskell, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You are you are literally a rising star in our um, legislative field here in Connecticut, and I wish you nothing but the best of success. And I m hope more than ever that someday, when this is over, hopefully soon, um, I can meet you or something like that. We could like walk the streets or something or whatever, or go to a restaurant or just whatever. If you have any free time, I'd love to hang out with you because you're super cool. You have a bunch of really awesome ideas and I'm really, I'm really happy for you. I know a lot of my friends are happy for you. So best of luck in everything that you do. You know that I would love to have you back on and you know that when you run again, you have my full support 100%. So thank you so much, brother. Jeff, thank you. I look forward to meeting in person and I'm going to tell Shred Lamont about his nickname. <laughs> awesome. Stay healthy, um, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. You too. You stay healthy. Your family stay healthy. And I appreciate you coming on. Uh, take care, my friend. Thanks again to our guests on the podcast today, Connecticut State Senator Will Haskell. Thank you so much, Senator, for giving us some of your free time. And I look forward to having you back on the podcast down the road to talk more about your work and your run for re-election. Just like that, another episode is in the books. Thank you all so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Like I have said before, I have a bunch of great guests lined up for you guys. I look forward very soon to speaking to the 10-term mayor of Danbury, Connecticut, and the Republican-endorsed candidate for governor of Connecticut in 2018, Mayor Mark Bowen, Newtown, Connecticut's very own, touring musician with Jonathan Edwards, favorite of legendary Bill Monroe, recent recipient of the 2019 John Lennon Award for his song, Lindy Town, that is now in the running for Song of the Year, Mr. Jim Allen. I am also looking forward to speaking to a new local brewery in my town called New Silent Brewing Company and how they have navigated these difficult times and their plans for the future. I hope you will join me next week. Appreciate you all for listening. And as always, you know the deal. Stay safe, stay healthy. Love to you all. Peace.